Hope that you're doing well this morning. Uh, my voice is a little bit croaky. It's not COVID, right? I've been tested uh, a number of times. So if I do sound like I'm struggling, you can shout out, help him, Jesus, and I won't be offended. Uh, that's what they do in some charismatic churches. I'll, I'll take it. Um, if you are new with us, just want to say a very big welcome. Uh, it is great to have you. It'll be wonderful to have you join us for some coffee. And uh, we're in a series at the moment called Seeing Jesus. And uh, our tagline is Know, Believe, Live. And the reason for that is because John writes his gospel for a very specific reason. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those gospels are known as synoptic gospels, which just means they can be read together because they are a narrative of the life of Jesus Whereas John takes a different approach with his gospel, he's more theological, and the reason why he writes what he does and records what he does is because there is symbolism and there are signs that points to the messiahship and the godness of Jesus, right? And by recording these, he's saying, he's hoping that you will come to know, believe, and have life in Jesus. And he sort of like gives a synopsis and a bit of a thesis right at the end, um, like a mini sort of succinct summary of why he's doing or writing what he's writing right at the end of John. And so by way of reminder, I want to read that to you as we get stuck into some chapters today. John chapter 20 verse 31, this is what he says. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these, in other words, these that are written in this gospel are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So today we're going to be looking at two recorded miracles that, that, that Jesus performed. And you must remember that John refers to these as signs. And they are highly symbolic. It's not just a narrative. Yes, the narrative's included. But the reason why John records these is because they teach us about Jesus. They teach us something significant about his greatness. But we also learn something significant about ourselves through these recorded miracles. And so as we read these, we need to be asking ourselves, what does John want us to learn? What does he want us to see about Jesus and what does he want us to see about ourselves? So let's read the first miracle together. You'll find that in John chapter 4, after the, the encounter with the woman at the well that we had a look at last week, from verse 43 in chapter 4 all the way through to 54, we're going to read about Jesus doing something really cool, which is very similar to uh, the testimony that was shared earlier about a grandchild being healed. So after two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his home country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign 
Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So there are going to be some things we're going to look at right at the end of this, of unpacking this uh, miracle that we learn about Jesus, the significance of the symbolism uh, in this. But there's some things we need to learn about ourselves. Um, and the first one is about checking our motives. Right? There's this obscure sort of like thing that happens in the beginning of the story. In verse 44, Jesus says that a, a, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. In other words, he's going to a place where he's not going to be honored. He's not going to be recognized. He's not going to be received. Because he's going to where he's from. He's going to his people. And so Jesus testifies that this, this prophet, who he is, is not going to be accepted. But then in verse 45, it says that when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. So he's not going to be accepted, yet they welcome him. And it doesn't seem to be making much sense. What's happening here? How is it that he's not going to be honored yet at the same time he's welcomed? What's going on? Well, if you look at verse 45, you'll notice why the people of Galilee welcomed him. It says, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival for, for they had also been there. In other words, their motives were skewed. Here's the thing with the people in Galilee. They were all too happy to receive Jesus because of what they were going to get out of him. They had seen him turn water into wine. Maybe he'll do it for me. They had seen him raise the dead and do crazy stuff. Maybe he'll do that for me. Jesus is coming to a people who are not honoring him for who he is, but what he can do. They're receiving him not because of what he is and who he is, but because of what they think they can get from him. And here's the thing that I think we learn about ourselves. We need to check our motives constantly because I think the same ill motives exist today within the church. There are so many who come to Jesus because they are promised things that are maybe peripheral in the kingdom and that are benefits from being sons and daughters, but it becomes the primary reason why people come to church and to come to know Jesus. And Jesus gets treated like this vending machine that you plop something into and you push a button and you expect something to come out of. They come to Jesus for some shallow, superficial, physical benefits that can be derived from him. They don't believe that he is the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who is worth giving all of us to. Rather we come to church or to this church or to that church because over there the music's nicer. Or over there they've got more money. Or I come because I was promised that if I test God and give him money, he'll give me more. We all know that one, right? So one, so one scripture everyone knows, it's like God says, test me. So it's okay to test God. We turn worship into what we can get out of it. It's the same with the Galileans. Turn the worship of Jesus into something other than what it should be. Instead of looking to him and giving him everything regardless of the benefit, it's like I'm going to accept him because of what he can give me. The church has a thing. Jesus expects life-transforming faith. Our motives are wrong when we come to Jesus and we come and we sit in church and we call ourselves Christians only because of what we think we're going to get. One of my pet peeves with young people, um, in a good attempt to have young people come to know Jesus, young people who are struggling with stuff, people falsely tell them, come to Jesus and it's going to be okay. I want to say to you, coming to Jesus may be one of the most difficult things you ever do in your life and life is not necessarily going to get easier as you follow Jesus. In fact, it may get even more difficult, but you'll have the King of Kings as your Lord and as your Savior and as the one who leads you, right? Being a Christian is hard. Being a Christian is difficult. 
If you're a progressive Christian and you embrace the world, then yeah, no, it's easy because you just say whatever you want them to say. And you believe whatever you want to believe. But if you are a biblical, like, word-rooted Christian that's following Jesus, life is tough as a Christian. People of Galilee welcomed Jesus because of what they thought they could get from him. Instead of him being the treasure, instead of him being the pearl of great price, they want what he can get. And I think we learn from this about ourselves and about what, what God wants for us to, to know is that he's, he's not a hobby. Christianity is not a hobby. Jesus is not a hobby that you can refine. He's not another idol that you can put on the shelf of the other idols in your life and take it off and shine it up when you need it. Right. Jesus calls for new birth, genuine faith, real following of him. This is what John records Jesus saying to Nicodemus in John 3. He says, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Coming to Jesus and following him only because of what he can give you is not true faith. It's not rebirth. It's not entering into the kingdom of heaven. The question we've got to ask ourselves is, why are you sitting here this morning? Why are you following Jesus? What is your motive? Have you come to really know him or are you here sitting hoping to receive some of the peripheral benefits of being a son and a daughter. I want to say those things exist and they're great, but the deepest and most intimate and most amazing experience you can have is knowing Jesus for who he is and loving him regardless. Are you able to say, Lord, you give and you take away, and regardless of what I have, you're my treasure. You're my treasure. In the desert and in the land of plenty, you're my savior. The other thing we learn about ourselves and this might seem contrary to what I've just shared. And a little bit we learn about how great Jesus is, is that he's able to take shallow faith and apply greater grace to our lives. We go on from reading about their motives for receiving him to, to reading about this royal official who comes to beg Jesus to heal his son. And just as we have a, like a side note here, I love it when people of high stature come and they fall at the feet of Jesus and they beg him for something. It's just an indication of what will happen with every single one of us one day. All of us have begged Jesus for something and he's responded in grace if it's been with a pure motive and we've received what he's had to give, right? And that's his salvation. But one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And God's call to us is that we beg him now while there's still time for the thing that he wants to give us and not when it's too late. Right? But he has this royal official, he begs Jesus. To come and heal his son. And then Jesus responds. And he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's important to know that when Jesus, when John uses the word you, when Jesus says you, unless you see signs and wonders, in the original language, the you is plural. So Jesus is not just speaking to this man. He's lumping him in with a bunch of people that were around him. And he's saying, unless you people... In response to this man's question and plea, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But then the man persists and he says, please, please come and heal my son. And instead of responding in a harsh way to him, because Jesus is critical of his shallow faith, he has this man who knows Jesus can heal but doesn't really know Jesus for who he's supposed to be knowing him for, if that makes sense. He's asking Jesus to do something that he knows Jesus can do, but he doesn't really know Jesus. Jesus responds in grace and with greater grace to his shallow faith. And he says, go, your son will be well. 
So the official takes Jesus at his word because he's probably been part of the group of people who know that Jesus can do wild things, probably has heard about the water being turned into wine and other things. And so he takes Jesus at his word and off he goes. And on his way, he's met with his servants who tell him that his son has been healed. And in that moment, something changes for this guy. And it says that he believes in Jesus and so does his entire household. And so Jesus takes shallow faith and really shallow motives and does something out of grace for this guy in such a way that it transforms his heart so that he becomes a genuine believer and his motives are pure. So Jesus is showing us that he's able to take something that might have been shallow and transform it into something deep. But the problem is not that we come to Jesus with shallow motives initially. The problem is that we stay there. So often, Christians will come to church for, like I said, shallow, reason, shallow reasons and shallow motives like the Galileans in the beginning. And they'll stay there. But oftentimes, you come for the wrong reasons and you meet Jesus and you go deeper. And that's a great thing. God has got grace for that. And I was sharing with um, the 8 o'clock service. I've been in youth ministry for a long time. And you'll be surprised. Maybe you won't be. But you'll be surprised at some of the motives for teenagers coming to youth ministry. right? And a lot of it has got to do with that pretty girl was there or that really good looking guy was there. All right. And maybe it's like that with adults as well. I don't know. Right. But the reality is there are some that come and that remains their motive. Oh, they're giving away Easter eggs or they're giving away hamburgers or they're doing some cool event. We recognize because that's why we do what we do. Recognize that that's attractive. Right. But there've also been, also been testimonies of teenagers who've come for the wrong reasons or shallow motives and, um, shallow reasons, but have met Jesus and all of a sudden it's transformed their reason for coming. All of a sudden now it's about who Jesus is. And then it doesn't matter what you do on a Friday night or what we do for youth ministry, they're there because they love Jesus. And that's what happens with this guy. Acceptance of Jesus might start shallow. And I want to encourage you, if you're here for all the wrong reasons this morning, when you truly come to know Jesus, that will change. And I want to encourage you, God wants to take you into that place. If you're here because you want to be in a better financial position, if you're here because you want to be healed, great. If you're here because there's something that you're dealing with that's dark and difficult and haven't been able to overcome it and you think and you've heard that only Jesus can do it for you, he can. But I want to say, when he does stuff in your life, it's not so that that can just be dealt with and you go on your own way. It's so that that can be dealt with so that he can show you how great he is that you go into a relationship with him that's life-transforming. James deals with this problem of belief, but, but not real deep faith. He puts it this way, James chapter 2, verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. In other words, you believe in God. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So there's, there's a difference between believing God exists and believing in him and having faith in him. See, when Jesus calls people to belief, and this is what happens with this, with this man, this royal official, I believe. He comes believing in God, maybe believing that Jesus is the Messiah, but not really having a relationship with him. And all of a sudden, his motives are transformed. All of a sudden, it, it, it becomes a faith where it's no longer about coming to Jesus in the dark like Nicodemus did to sort of like hide your engagement with him. True belief is belief that doesn't leave God because of inconvenience or difficulty. True belief is belief in Jesus that follows him regardless of the cost of following him. True belief is a belief that says, He's done this amazing stuff for me. 
But I owe him because of that everything that I have. And I follow him because of who he is, because I love him. He is worth my everything, regardless of what I have. The words spoken by Jesus are words that are significant. And we're going to get into the sign and the symbolism of why John records this. Remember again, I want to keep bringing you back to this. John writes and records what he does as um, signs and symbols in the book as a way of pointing to the greatness of Jesus. So we've got to ask ourselves this the question, why did Jesus, why did John record this miracle? What, what sign and symbolism exists within this miracle that points us to the greatness of Jesus? Well, the words spoken by Jesus to the royal official, your son will live, are exactly the same as the words spoken by Elijah in 1 Kings. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 23, Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. How is this significant? Well, as a first century Jewish reader, you would have understood this. You would have known the scriptures. You would have really revered Elijah. And you would have read John's account of what Jesus did. And you would have known that Jesus, when he heals and says your son lives, didn't have to be there. Elijah had to be there. Elijah had to be there to heal Jesus. For him, the spoken word was enough. In other words, he does what only God can do and commands things to happen in a place that he's not. And so John is establishing the fact for the Jewish reader of the day that Jesus is greater than Elijah. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the one who brings healing. And when he speaks life, life happens. And church, I want to say to you, When Jesus says to you, you will live, you will live. When Jesus says to you, you are forgiven, you are forgiven. And so as we read this, we need to realize that John is establishing Jesus as greater than any of the prophets, greater than any of the forefathers that had come, greater than any of the patriarchs that existed for the Jewish nation. Jesus is greater. And so when they read that, when we read that, and we hear that Jesus just speaks it, we must know this is God at work. A little bit later on in the series, we'll get to John chapter 11. But this is what Jesus says about himself in chapter 11, verse 25 to 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I think that's the question Jesus is asking you this morning. Do you believe this? Do you believe this about Jesus? Miracle number two. Miracle number two, we really learn about true healing. It says this in chapter five, verse one, and we're going to go to verse 15. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learnt that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, picked up his mat and walked. 
The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. So the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this miracle, Jesus is in Jerusalem. Jesus goes out of his way to enter a really terrible place. He goes into a place that is not glorious at all. There was nothing nice about this place. It was a place where there were a multitude of disabled people. Then out of the myriads of uh, helpless people, Jesus picks this man who's been paralyzed or an invalid for 38 years. Nothing's made him well. He's hopeless, helpless. It's been like this for 38 years. And Jesus goes and then asks him this question, uh, do you want to get well? Right? I'd, if you're like me, I think that's an absurd question. Right? Like, do you want to get well? At face value, it's the most ridiculous question maybe that Jesus could have asked. Maybe like, hey, do you enjoy being here would have been more ridiculous. But do you want to get well? Of course he wants to get well. So why does Jesus ask this question? Well, like the woman at the well, Jesus says, hey, give me a drink of water. She's like, well, what are you going to, you talk, why are you talking to me? And she's like, forget about me talking to you. If you knew who I was, you would ask me for water and I would give it to you. This guy doesn't actually understand what Jesus wants to do and is actually offering him. Jesus is not speaking necessarily about his physical state. He's speaking about the man's spiritual state. But he's got to take him there. He's got to get him there. And he does get there. You'll see just now. But Jesus is asking a deeper question. And the question Jesus asks you and I today is regardless of your physical circumstances, your financial circumstances, your mental and emotional circumstances and state. The question is, do you want to be well? Because Jesus can heal that. But the most important thing is if you're not spiritually in the right place, Jesus' concern is primarily for that. Jesus is asking him, do you want to be well? And the man misunderstands. Listen to his answer. He says, sir, we can insert some words. Of course I want to be well, but I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another one steps down before me. The belief was that angels stirred up the waters in this pool and the first one into the pool got healed. But then Jesus responds to him when he responds to this hopeless situation. Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mats. And walk. Instantly, the man who's been disabled for 38 years is healed. And what's significant to understand is that by Jesus telling him to pick up his mat and walk, it was a sign to everybody as he was carrying his mat that he has had victory over death and sickness. He's carrying his mat. It demonstrated healing to all who would see him. But then this conflict that happens, and this is part of what we learn about ourselves from this miracle. In verse 10, there's this conflict that happens between this man and some Jewish religious leaders. It says, it is the Sabbath, they said to him, when they see him walking. And it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. What would they have said if he wasn't carrying his mat? I don't know. But they have an issue with him carrying his mat. Just think about this for a minute, guys. Here's a guy who's probably known by most of the people in that area. A lot of people in Jerusalem. He's been crippled for 38 years. He gets up, picks up his mat, 
And the biggest issue the Jewish religious leaders of the day have is that he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. That's their issue. Rather than rejoicing with this man, rather than going to go and find the one who's brought the healing, to ask him who it is that he is and why it is that he's able to do this and could he be the one, they get super religious and they miss the sign that the great healer is amongst them. What do we learn about that from ourselves? We think that the Pharisees were in a league of their own when it comes to religiosity and legalism. We can be exactly the same. When Jesus is doing a great work in the church, sometimes our man-made structures and our legalistic processes can get in the way. And when Jesus is doing a great work, we can sometimes pay so much attention to the far lesser thing and we miss the greater work. We miss the power of the Spirit. We miss God at work. We don't ask the right questions. God, is this you at work? God, this is amazing. Let's celebrate. No, no, this is not. And we become very hard. I think we need to process sometimes what's going on around us in the spiritual realm and ask God for forgiveness for where we become so legalistic and hold on to man-made structures that we've quenched the Spirit and not celebrated what God is actually doing in our church and in our lives. So we learn that about ourselves. But we also learn that when God does something in our lives, when he brings healing, when he heals us physically, when he restores us from something that we've been struggling with, when he heals us and saves us, the most significant healing we can have is that rebirth, that salvation. When he does that, we've been healed for a purpose and for a reason, not just for the sake of it. We see this because Jesus approaches this man in the temple who's obviously now celebrating and rejoicing in the temple. He's taking part in this feast that's happening and he's like worshiping God. Something's happened in his heart and in his life because of the physical healing. There's obviously a spiritual thing that's now happened. And Jesus sees him in the temple and he says to him, see, you are well. Now sin no more. Sin no more or something worse may happen to you, it says. I'm not suggesting, it doesn't say it, that the, that the man was crippled because of sin in his life. But Jesus was saying to him, what has happened to you is significant. Not only have you been physically healed, but spiritually as well. Now go and sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. I want you to consider the man hearing this from the words, the mouth of Jesus. He's been crippled for 38 years. How much worse can things get for you? When you hear that from Jesus, the one who's healed you, you've got to know he's talking about something significant. And Jesus is not talking about another physical ailment or losing people that you've loved. Jesus is not talking about experiencing something worse than the 38 years of being crippled. Jesus has a primary concern for this guy, and that's his spiritual state and the salvation that he wants him to step into. And the worst thing that can happen is that after receiving what you've received from Jesus, that you turn your back on him and walk away, and that you experience eternal death. That's the concern of Jesus. There are terrible things that we go through in this world. There are horrible things that we are experiencing. There are families that have been through immense turmoil. There, there are things that are indescribable that people have suffered. This world is an evil and wicked place. But nothing comes close 
to the severity of eternal punishment. Nothing. So when Jesus says to this guy, when he says to you and me, you've been healed, go and sin no more. We don't take those words lightly. Jesus is not necessarily speaking about a physical ailment or something bad that will happen to us. It's not talking about karma. It's talking about you engaging in stuff that you shouldn't after you've received what God has given to you and then turning away from him and walking away and forgetting that actually the greatest thing that you've ever experienced is spiritual life. When you chuck that away and you reject Jesus and you meet him face to face one day when you're on the other side of this world and you're in eternity and he enters and he sends you into hell because you have rejected him, that's the something worse. We've been healed to be holy. We've been healed to serve our king. We've been healed to follow him. You've been healed to glorify his name. You've been healed to go and sin no more. And to bring him the honor that's due his name. Church, you and I profess the name of Jesus and we have the life that we have in us, not so that we can do our own thing. We are children, sons and daughters in a kingdom that has a king. We are not part of a spiritual democracy, right? We love democracy as a way of governing our country. Awesome, right? The kingdom is a hierarchy. It's a monarchy. There is a king who's in control, and when he says, we do. So you've been healed to be holy and to be set apart. Jesus says, see, you're well. Go and sin no more. So those are some of the things we learn about ourselves, but I want to end off this morning by looking at some of the significant signs and symbolism that we see in this miracle. We're just going to take a few steps back. But as, as we conclude here, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He goes into this colonnade or this area where there's a couple of colonnades with sick people. And out of the tons of sick people there, he chooses one guy. Right? And he's been in this condition, it says, specifically for 38 years. As we consider the symbolism of this and what John is trying to say to us, remember the context of John. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm very wary of taking signs and numbers and drawing conclusions and trying to link it to things and going down rabbit holes that you shouldn't be going down. And we can get into all sorts of conspiracy theories about numbers within the scriptures and all that sort of stuff. And ordinarily, like I don't enjoy doing that, but this, this record of this miracle is set within the context of John. And John is full of sign and symbolism to show you how great Jesus is. So he chooses this guy who's been sick for 38 years, or an invalid for 38 years. The, the time marker for this miracle is around about the Passover time. John is not recorded chronologically. In other words, as you read John, it's not one event after the next in time. John just records miracles. So one miracle you read here could have happened before the one you read earlier on in John, right? But the time mark is about the Passover celebration time. And it says in chapter 5 that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. It doesn't say which one. It's highly likely that it's a feast called Sakoth or a, it's, it's like, it's the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Most of the Jewish feasts, um, celebrated their leaving Egypt and being taken into the desert and then into the promised land. It's like celebrating their, their freedom from slavery. And Sakoth was a, a, a festival that, and a feast that required people to make a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. Right? So that's the backdrop for this miracle. And Jesus selects this utterly hopeless, helpless guy who's been this way for 38 years. And I'll keep that in the back of your mind as you read this in Deuteronomy and think about what would have stood out for you as a first century Jewish reader. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 2, 14 to 15. At the time from our leaving Kadesh, Bonea, until we crossed the brook Zered, was 38 years. 
until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. First century Jewish reader, you're celebrating the Passover. It's very clear and painfully obvious to you that your people were not obedient to God when he took you out of slavery. And so it took 38 years for you to suffer before you entered the promised land. Moses was not able to take you into the promised land. Joshua was. And the Joshua generation inherited this land. The name of Jesus is Joshua. It means Joshua. And so what John is getting across here is that Jesus is the new Joshua. He is the one who's able to take you from a hopeless, hopeless situation. And when his people died off physically in the desert, there are people dying off spiritually as well because of their legalism and their lack of faith in him. But he's able to take you from the desert place into the true promised land. Jesus is the one who's able to help you inherit the promised land. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. The promised land that they inherited as a physical inheritance is nothing compared to the spiritual inheritance Jesus is able to lead you into. When a first century Jewish person read this, like this is unbelievable. We're celebrating our freedom from slavery physically and into a place where we inherited a land that was a blessing. Jesus comes and at this time performs a miracle that proves that he's able to take you from a land of spiritual slavery to spiritual freedom. From bondage to the enemy to spiritual life. He is the new and true Joshua. He is the Messiah. He is the promised coming one who has come. No one is greater than him. I find that to be so incredibly amazing. There are some scholars who don't make that connection. But there are many who do. And I find if you miss that connection, you miss out on so much of what John is trying to say by recording this miracle. Yes, you could speak about Jesus doing this and saying that he has authority over the, the, the Sabbath. It could just be purely that he wants to be kind. But John says right at the end, I've recorded these so that you may know that Jesus is the Messiah. So that you may know him, believe in him, and have life in him. So as we read this, we know that there are people perishing spiritually like there were people perishing in the desert. And no one could help them except Jesus. All right. So this morning as we wrap up, I'm going to ask the team, I think we're going to end, start with worship. If we can end with worship, that would be great. I'm going to ask Sharon to come and join me. Where's Sharon? Last week we ended with um, just a call for people to deal with some of the stuff that God was doing in their lives. And I think this week it's very similar. Maybe there's stuff in your life that you're sitting with and you're holding on to that you need to be released from. In order to experience the goodness and the life and the grace of God, maybe you want to come to know Jesus for the first time in your life today. We want to pray for you. But some of the stuff that we struggle with as Christians is stuff that stops us and blocks us from experiencing the deep, uh, significant relationship with the Lord. And there are courses. One of our things is the Living Free course, which Peter spoke about. But there's some other stuff. And Sharon um, is part of the leadership team that um, leads a it's seven-week-long course, right? seven-week-long course that will help you to deal with some of the stuff that maybe you need to deal with. And in way of responding to God, today I believe God's called us to do stuff. If you want prayer, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to lead you to the Lord if you want to come to know Jesus. But maybe there's stuff you need to be doing after this morning um, because God's convicted you to, to, to deal with some of that stuff. And I think part of what Sharon is to share with you is a way that you can deal with the things in your life. I wonder this morning, what is the condition of your heart 
as you sit here in church? What is the condition of your heart? The scripture tells us that our heart is the wellspring of life and that people drink from the wellspring of your life. So people you love, people around you, they are drinking from the wellspring from your heart. What is the condition of that water that you are giving others to drink from? Fresh start is what it is. It is, it is giving you, it's a seven week course. Oops, sorry, I've lost it. It's a seven week course on a Saturday afternoon which looks at the condition of our hearts and it gives us tools to work towards understanding what is the offense, hurt, or loss that you have picked up in your heart that has contaminated your heart. And it gives teaching of how we recognize and how we deal with the offense, hurt, and loss that is in our heart. So again, let me ask you, what is the condition of your heart this morning? When I started the Fresh Start course, when I was a participant, my heart was offended, it was hurt, it was cold, it was locked down, and emotions were locked down. When I had completed this course, my heart was once again alive and could feel. If you are struggling with addiction, if you are struggling with, with a hurt, offense, or loss, this is the course for you because it moves you, it gives you the skills, it gives you a safe opportunity to unpack that and to move towards freedom. This is starting, hang on, it's starting on May the 7th and it goes, which is a Saturday, for seven consecutive weeks. It is from 2.30 to 5 o'clock. And it's happening at King of Kings Baptist Church in Fishhook. If you are interested, please come and connect with me.